<laughs> all right. Um, thank you all for coming. Who is uh, who's a, who's an administrator? Anybody? Legit. We got four of us. This is great. Uh, I've been after Dave Stevens and now Mike Chubb. You need to have an administrative arm of the Christian Medical and Dental Association. We're the administrators, so there's a few of us in here representing. Um, I'm going to tell you some stories, and uh, they're raw and unedited and uh, somewhat vulnerable, and so I'm going to lead off this one-hour session by saying that I'm standing here confronting one of my worst fears, which is to speak specifically out of the Bible to a bunch of people that I view as perhaps more spiritually mature than me. And I'm not a doctor, I'm just an administrator, and what do I know about medical missions if I've only been over there short-term but not lived long-term overseas? And so all that stuff I'm just tossing out there, um, along with the fact that I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And I believe everything in that book's true. And I believe that Christ is our Savior, and I believe that we are created to walk uh, with Him. So... With all of that being a common denominator, I'm hoping if I just toss out that laundry right there, just get it out of the way that I can get through this slides in the next hour, and I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit uses that to cause each of us to think differently about to what we're called and with whom we are called to do it. So, open with prayer. Father God, just uh, pray that you would anoint this next hour, um, and that this hour would be used uh, to make your name great. Uh, both in this room and far beyond it, to the ends of the earth. Uh, we pray that Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen, would become our reality soon, Lord, come. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. Um, I, for the last ten years, have lived in western Kansas, um, which is not the end of the earth, but we say you can get a pretty good view of it from there. Um, we... Uh, what most folks might think of is it's a flyover state. No one ever actually goes there, and there's way more cattle than people and all that stuff. But what most folks don't know is that it's a very diverse area, and there's a large population of Somalis, Somali Muslim refugees, who work at the world's largest beef packing plant in Holcomb, Kansas, home of In Cold Blood. If any of you ever read that in school, that's where it happened. So, warm and fuzzy place, right? Um, so we lived there, and we moved there in 2013, had already lived in Kansas for previous five years in another town south of Dodge City, where, like, wider shot up the town, and the west was one, like, way out there. And so we moved into Garden City, and um, we're really interested, particularly of all the 30 or 40 countries represented in that area, the Somali people. And so I started shopping at, at a local African shop, and I would say it's the African shop because it's the only one in the region that sold supplies from East Africa. It was kind of a watering hole for East African folks, mostly Muslim. And uh, they would go in there and buy their things. Well, um, I was not exactly received warmly. And, and as I was going in there, I was going in there with some level of mild anxiety because there was a... There was a Somali proverb that, that a group of us who were missional believers who were living in that area had really heard, and this was our impression, true or not, of the Somali Muslim people. And that was summarized as me and my clan against the world, or me and my nation against the world, me and my clan against my nation, me and my family against the clan, me and my brother against the family, me against my brother. Um, warriors, fighters, 
the stereotype was, don't mess with me. You know, keep keep your distance, arm's length. Um, the 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 health nurses at Tyson, who we knew because we re, we did a lot, our our hospital served a lot of them, and would come over for surgery and things, would say that there were Friday night fights at the plant where people thankfully would drop their knives uh, at the plant and just start duking it out on the line. And I would ask, well, who's doing it? And she would say, a Somali and someone else. So this was in our mind as we were getting to know this pretty tough-to-reach people group. We actually didn't know anyone that that actually knew a Somali who wasn't Somali. And so um, this was at least the reputation of Somalis in our area. And uh, at the times, uh, Garden City was a place where Somalis would come for two to three years, get stable as a first drop-off spot, um, settle settle there, and then move to the Twin Cities where it's essentially the largest population of Somalis and North America live, uh, which is right there. And so we, we, there was a transient spot, and they really didn't spend time getting to know the community. And so as I was, I was going in there over a period of two or three years, buying dates and raisins and honey and uh, tea and essentially the only things I would ever use in my house at that store were those things. And I, and I was just for two years buying these things until my wife said, no more dates, we're going to get... Diabetes, right? Like, no more dates. And so then it was a stack of Katepati this tall, and I was just continuing to go in there and, and shop, and this guy would receive me very skeptically, a guy named Adan. Like, are you the government here to shut me down? Like, I'll take your money. That's it. Like, we're not having conversations. Didn't speak much English. But all the while, just kept going in there and shopping. And slow, every once in a while, I'd bring one of my kids in there and just slowly, slowly getting a little bit more comfortable myself in there. Well, at the time, there was this group of us that began to pray oh, for reconciliation and protection over the people of southwest Kansas. Ironically, we were praying for our protection because we believed that these people were probably one or two degrees separated from Al-Shabaab or some, some really gnarly folk. And so we're thinking, you know, let's, we, we just want to make sure that we're bathing this in prayer as we get to know these folks. There's some irony in that story as it goes on. But um, we were specifically uh, a, a doctor um, that was on our team at, at the hospital. We, we were praying on our Sunday night life group, like home group, um, Lord, bring us a person of peace that would open a door within this community that would allow us to get to know folks. And that evening, and this had been about two years since we'd been serving and doing this, this woman calls me at 10.30 at night. I was getting in bed, and, and I was in my pajamas. And she called and said, Benjamin, you haven't been in the store in a while. And I didn't know how she found my number. I could not believe this was going on. So I said, well, I'm due for some tea. Um, that was partially true. Um, <coughs> um and she said, well, my, my uncle Aran, he wants to meet with you. I said, wow, where? And she said, at his home. I said, all right, when? Right now. <laughs> so I looked at the clock, it's 10.30, my wife's fast asleep, so I didn't even tell her. I just got a hoodie on, <laughs> some jeans, and I went, drove about a half an hour, and I picked up a doctor on the way, and we went over uh, to their home and had a feast. I ate 5,000 calories for dinner that I obviously don't need. Um, so I went in there and we ate every morsel of stuff. We started asking questions like, we want to start a restaurant in the back of our store. Who can help us do that legally? Or we want driver's licenses, but the only place that accommodates Somali is in Denver or in, in Amarillo. So we're having to go out of state to illegally get driver's licenses to, so we can legally drive here. And 
that seems kind of weird. How can we get driver's licenses here in Kansas? And we want to understand um, English, but we can only learn in the middle of the night or on the weekends because we all work double shifts so we could send half of our money back to, to our starving family. Or um, we don't understand why you have to pay for health insurance premiums and then you have to pay when you use your health insurance. And I said, man, I'm a hospital CEO, and I don't understand that. That's messed up. So... Um, so they asked a lot of these questions, and then uh, at the end of it, I'm just blown away that this is happening. Like, we didn't do anything different. We didn't strategize anything other than just pray for a person of peace to walk into our life. And at the end of it, I said, what are the chance? I mean, how often do you invite random white people into your home in the middle of the night for dinner? And he said, well, first of all, this isn't the middle of the night for us. This is dinner time. We all get off at 11. We just invited you over when we eat dinner. I'm like... All right, it's about one in the morning by now, and my wife still doesn't know where I am. <laughs> and and so uh, that was an interesting conversation on the way home. I was elated and so excited to call her, and she was disoriented and disheveled. <laughs> like, where are you? What's going on? Why did you go in that house? But as, as we were leaving, um, I said, he said, I've never had a white person in my home. And I said, how long have you lived in in uh, Garden City? And he said, ten years. And I said, in that ten years. I didn't really want to know the answer to this because I thought I, I was expecting it. I said, how often have you been involved, invited into the home of someone who's not Somali? He said, never. And I thought, is this all the more hospitable we are? Not just in the Bible belt, but in the little like metal piece that goes through the leather hole of the buckle of the Bible belt. Like, we're right there. And, and is this all the more hospitable we are in a place like this? And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, but we're, you're no longer a stranger in my home. You're my family now. And in my culture, what this means is that I have now permanently committed to protect your life, even over my own life or the life of my family. This is not a small thing that you've been invited in here. And I walked in there believing I am at risk. And I left believing there's no safer place I could be physically than in the home of a Somali warrior who invited me into there. So he said this to me, and it blew me up. Well, just after that, I was invited to teach in the Horn of Africa at a medical school. Some, um, I have a background in healthcare delivery science and, and value-based care and healthcare leadership and stuff like that. And so um, I had been invited to go with a surgeon who was considering moving there um, to teach at a university uh, for a couple of weeks to a cert-based like, leadership course. And and uh, so this is a little edgy for me. I've, I've spent some time, a lot of time in Southern Africa, but never in Northeast Africa. I keep seeing the open doors list and realizing this is number two, right? This isn't like behind North Korea, there's this place, and I have two six-year-olds and two four-year-olds and, and a wife that I would not like not to widow or orphan, right? So I'm, I'm a little anxious about this. I prayed about it, really felt peace about going there and doing this. But just at that time, this other Somali leader approaches me and said, we understand your family. I'm going to go before you when you go. And, and at first I thought he meant the week before. He's not talking about the week before. He's talking about I'm blocking for you. I'm walking in front of you. I'm translating. I'm opening doors. I'm making sure nobody messes with you. And I thought, man, this guy can't be serious. I just met this dude. And, and I mean, it's a nice looking guy. I mean, Vanity Fair did take this picture, right? Vanity Fair taking pictures of me, right? So this, here, here, he, maybe he can go before me and be a distraction. Right, so, so um, 
So I said, all right, man, if you want to go, we'll go together, not really realizing the implications of that. Well, a a couple of weeks later, these three knuckleheads were arrested in Garden City, Kansas, for attempting to blow every Somali Muslim off the map in southwest Kansas with four times the explosives that were used in the Oklahoma City bombing with Timothy McVeigh. It was the exact kind of explosives they were trying to use. They planned it for two years, and there was an informant among them that had notified the FBI, and they were captured. Their plan was to do it the day after Trump was elected so that it wouldn't sway the election, and they were busted. And, and it was on Al Jazeera news. There were Somalis that were in Al Jazeera visiting, or I'm sorry, that were in Somalia visiting their family and watched it on Al Jazeera news looking at their apartment in southwest Kansas on World News, is there, it was attempted to be blown off the map. Like there would have been over a thousand casualties if this had been pulled off. So oh my goodness, right? That's a lot going on. And, and so here I am planning to go over there um, right after the presidential election. And so just the day before we were to leave, the imam of the Garden City Mosque calls me into the African shop and said, I'd like you to bring this duffel bag on the plane with you. <laughs> <coughs> No lie. And I said, uh, <clears throat> uh, you're going to have to help me understand some context here. And he said, my family is one kilometer away from where you'll be teaching, and I have no other way to get this stuff to them. And I opened it up, and it was cell phones and vitamins and clothing and I love you cards and lotions and everything that a dad would <coughs> want to give to his daughters. But but couldn't get to him. And so I, I said, man, I'm, I'm not using one of my check bags. I'd be happy to take it. And he said, when you get there, they'll be happy to receive you in my home. Um, thank you. And so we go. And sure enough, this Somali kid, Mersal and the lady, everywhere we went, folks had their arms crossed at me, just weren't sure about me. And then he would mutter something of the word abowe, which means brother. And we were having coffee together warm and fuzzy and fun and they were so inviting once he would say that to me and he just kept opening doors all the way through the Dubai airport into Hargeisa and on and on and um, so then this dude meets up with me Mr. AK-47 guy and he has to go everywhere with me which when Kayla first heard that before we left I said you know there's a dude with an AK-47 that's going to be going everywhere with me to make sure just to make sure uh, and she said I'm not sure that's comforting Okay, well, it turned out he's used this substance called cut, which is like a, like not, not mixing well with an AK-47. I'm just saying. So he sits in the front seat. There's an expat dude driving. I'm behind dude, and then there's, there's two doctors, right, that we're going. And he decides to get his gun out of his way by putting it over his shoulder. And then, so for three hours, I'm staring at the barrel of this bouncing AK-47, and I'm a little bit on edge because... Yeah, my man back there was like, nah. <laughs> and, and so it kept slipping down, and then I'd lean in, thinking like in the movies it really doesn't go well for the dude in the back seat. Like, I'm leaning in, right? So finally we get there, and I'm, I'm really on edge at this point because um, my man didn't know how to handle a gun. And so first thing, though, we had to get business done, so we dropped off that bag at this, this man's family's house. Uh, his name was Ali Ali, his family's house. And sure enough, they walked in, and the workers there marveled that on my first day I was invited into the home of Somali when it had been years and they had never been invited in, but the trust had actually been established on the other side of the world that was over here. So then we're summoned into this guy's office, Professor Suleiman 
who is at one, was at one time the Minister of Health in Somalia before the war and trained at his graduate work at the University of London. I mean, this, this guy's a gangster, right? I mean, he's just the man. So uh, he's the type of dude, when, when you're cool, the sun shines all the time. That's my man right here, like sunglasses inside, right? He pulls us into his office and he says, uh, you're the guy from Kansas. <laughs> and I'm thinking, why is that significant right now? And he said, um, I'm also a Kansan. And I said, I really don't understand. I'm lost here. And he said, in 1968, I came to Emporia, Kansas as an international student at Emporia State University. And for five years, in that tiny town of 3,000 people, a white family took me into their home and they loved me. And I've never forgotten their kindness. And my impression of Kansans, from my experience there, is that they are warm, hospitable, hardworking um, people, moral people who value the same things we value, which are faith, family, education, and community. And I intend for you to receive the same hospitality while you're in my country. And it blew me away. What else was going on in 1968? Anybody remember? Four months before this dude shows up in Emporia, Kansas, this guy was shot in Memphis. Four months later, a white, probably Christian family in a town of 3,000 people at the time, that was Emporia's size, invites a black Muslim Somali 18-year-old man into their home and loves him. And And a half a century later, that pays dividends now. So I want this to set the tone for this, the rest of this conversation because it illustrates the timeless impact of the gospel through hospitality. It is the reason why the original church was set up this way. And we have departed from it. But the hospitality is going to be themed through the rest of this talk on administration and why. And so as you may be wondering, like, did I come to the right talk? I thought I came to talk about hospital administration. Um, know that this is really about relationships. It's really about relationships, and that's how the gospel is spread, is through relationships. And there are people that are working in the second hardest country in the world right now because 50 years ago, somebody whose name I don't even know invited them in, <coughs> and God used them in that way. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this section on hospital administration with an actual quote that came just several days ago from a very close friend of mine who's a missionary surgeon in a hard place in the world. And he said, practicing medicine in America is like driving a car. Practicing medicine overseas is like someone shipping you a junkyard, telling you to build a car, put it together, and figure out where to buy gas, and then driving it. You might have a license to drive and be a great driver, but you're going to have to learn many other roles to actually move forward in medicine. A good administrator will find a metal worker or a mechanic, hand you a gas card, and tell you where to buy the gas. Anybody been overseas practice medicine? Can anyone relate to this? To the absence of it? To absence of it? Does anybody? Did everybody have the, the mechanic who built the car and handed you? Okay, got it. So here's the agenda for the rest of our talk together. This, this is a, I'm going to tell you a story of the Missional Frontier Hospital. Um, il- illustrate the importance of administrative leadership um, to affect team culture, stewardship of resources, and clinical excellence, and then tools for developing healthy team culture within competent, mission-driven administrative leadership. Give you some practical tools to take with you, something to do different on Monday. Does that sound like a good use of about 40 minutes of our time? I'm hoping so because that's all I brought. <laughs> this is it. Okay. Um, 
Kearney County Hospital. I've been the CEO over there until last Friday. was the CEO there for the last six years. My family has recently moved to Colorado. That's another story. Um, but for the last six years, I've been there. And it's a full-spectrum hospital that, that employs almost exclusively full-spectrum family medicine providers that do everything that you can be trained to do as a family practice doctor in the United States, everything from surgical obstetrics, inpatient and outpatient care, ER and trauma, endoscopy, um, home health, uh, hospice, palliative care, beginning and end of life. They do nursing home rounds. They do house calls um, with a little black bag, Marcus Welby style, old school, full scope family medicine, but it's making a comeback, just saying. All right. Um, so that is our world. Um, and <coughs> there isn't, there is a definitely, uh, there is a definite but appropriate integration of faith and medical practice in this non-faith-based government hospital. The Washington Post was nice enough to name us the 10th most remote town in the United States. It's not a contest we knew we were in. It's certainly not one we wanted to win, but as we examine the list more closely in the different sectors, eight of the 30 most remote towns in the United States were in our service area. We delivered babies from all these places last year, so we're up there with Montana, except this is Montana. Y'all know where I'm going with this. This is Kansas. To be fair, this is half of Montana. All of Kansas. All right. But this is also Kansas. Patients or people from 30 countries have relocated to southwest Kansas um, for various reasons, um, much of which is related to the injustice happening in the world. And it's, though, it's as though in Matthew 28:19, where the Lord said, Go and therefore make disciples of all nations. The Lord realized or knew all along that um, we would be disobedient. Because there are those who go, those who support, those who go, and those who are disobedient, right? Now, Piper said, so we would be disobedient. So the Lord said, if you will not go, I will bring the nations to you. And they will, <coughs> and you will be staring the Great Commission down in this way. And so they brought them here. So this is us in southwest Kansas, gold, little gold box in the middle of south. I mean, so Michigan has a really nice hand-shaped state. We've got the rectangle. Right in the middle, and we're in the bottom left hand of the rectangle. Right, all these uh, these counties around us is where we're delivering babies, really from up to two hours away. So in 2015, we were turning away 50 patients per week. Our doctors were charting until midnight and on call every third night. And it probably sounds like the life of some missionary folk that we know that are in other countries that are completely overworked and emotionally spent and burnt out. And that's the track that we were on. It was a really troubling situation, and so. Um, we realized we had to do something different, so we got our governance together, our, our board and our administration and our doctors all together in the same room, we, and we held a really crucial um, time-sensitive strategy session where we said, what is sustainable? And out of that came a, a model that we could all buy into. And at the time, it was five doctors and five mid-levels and, and uh, not really realizing in the long run um, what, we, what kind of balance we need. And, and, the, and I think the importance for the audience here is not the number of doctors and the number of PAs, but the proportion of them. Um, because we've far outgrown this since then. But we knew that, that we needed a, a, a model that was centered around patients that would involve PAs and nurse practitioners doing the primary share of the emergency room call, being backed up by doctors, and then doctors doing a whole lot of the clinic 
um, while backing up the PAs and nurse practitioners uh, in, in the ED and delivering the baby. So all, all of our providers would do all of those things, but, um, but would just play in different roles and we would make sure that it was equitable. And we built it around four non-negotiable uh, factors or, or uh, values. One is standardized roles. We would all practice full-scope family medicine. We would not succumb to the temptation to get one OBGYN and one internist and one pediatrician and one general surgeon, and they could all be on call 24-7 for their own people. We would not do that. We would get full-scope family doctors and spread that call over as many people as we possibly could because we only had so many resources to spend around providers, and so we wanted to spread the call out as much as possible to allow people to stay healthy. The second thing was equitable call structure. No 70-year-old grump saying, Dad, Gemma I did it back in the 70s. You young pups don't know how to, how to work. Suck it up. I'm, I'm burnt out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do clinic only. Now it's your turn. There just was no space for that. So the most senior physician among us said, I'll do call with everyone else, and if there's a fifth weekend, I'll take it. I'll take the extra. Setting an example of servant leadership. So equitable call, everyone's on call fairly. Third, fair compensation. We wouldn't take advantage of somebody simply because they were missional. We would pay them what we could afford to pay them within the context that we could, not hiding a money bag behind us saying, yeah, we got. you're going to pad my bonus, right? There was just none of that. And then fourth was a mission-driven culture. We would offer 10 weeks of paid time off to anyone uh, who, who was on, medical, on our medical staff that would allow them to go anywhere in the world to serve. We were going to find a way to afford that. Um, so that those were the principles. And then uh, I got with a really wise guy that happens to be sitting over there somewhere um, who was teaching at Via Christie's Family Medicine Residency and had recently started an international family medicine fellowship. And his name's Todd Stevens. And, and I said, what do I have to do to recruit one of your residents here? And he said, um, frankly, you won't recruit one of my residents to there. You'll recruit two or you'll recruit none. Good ones don't want to practice by themselves. We're training them not to go. It's too dangerous. Even if they're existing doctors there, we're not, we don't want them to go as a solo recruit. We're telling them to go in pairs so they come with immediate community. Um, and, and I said, wow, okay. And he said, so once you've made peace with that, look at your own mission, vision, values, and goals. If you can't recite them in an elevator concisely, then, then your default mission is to stay open another day. And we're not training doctors in our residency whose desire is to stay employed another day. And that's who you'll attract with a mission of staying open another day. So if your mission statement is, is written on some lost document that's in a filing cabinet somewhere that's on legal paperwork and you haven't looked at it since, you're probably not ready to recruit our residents. And I don't make Todd sound very nice here, but he really is a very kind man <laughs> um, and has been a lifesaver for me and somebody who's discipled me over the years. But beyond that, he said, motivation, look at motivation, look at training, look at experience, look at character, analyze among the candidates these things, not just what kind of or how many years of experience they have, but what do they choose to use their experience in service? How are they using their time outside of medicine? Are they the big three? Are they compassionate? Are they hardworking? Are they teachable? You don't have the energy to be teaching somebody who's 30 years old to be compassionate, to work hard to be humble enough to receive feedback from others. Establish those things. What motivates them? Analyze what motivates them. That doesn't have to be identical for everyone, but you certainly want to know what motivates them. And as kingdom workers, we certainly want to know from a spiritual context what motivates folks. And then he said, instead of trying to use money, uh, country clubs, shopping, prestige, and in our context, it would be the only suburban-like home we have in our town that has brick on the front, right? Um, instead of trying to recruit to that or to meet the mayor or to see our nine-hole golf course, he said focus on opportunities to eradicate 
poverty, to deal with human suffering, focus on ministry, focus on justice. If you're going to focus on those things, you probably are as competitive as anywhere in the United States and some places in the world. So it turned our recruitment approach upside down. Um, when we did this, we, everything that we were attempting to not hide, but just push over here and focus on the one things, we, we realized that the one things that we thought were the important things really weren't important at all. It's not that it's bad to have good schools there, but that really wasn't why people were moving there were good schools. I mean, it's a lot of them homeschool their kids. What they're after is the opportunity to meet needs. So we analyzed the motivations of physicians. And the first, uh, there are five really profiles that we found in 10 years of recruitment or so that of people that would move to hard places, specifically rural Kansas. And one's a local kid coming back home. You find this one, Merry Christmas. Not every town turns out enough family doctors to go back to their hometown, but that's a Pretty cool scenario. Second one is the foreigner, and I realize this sounds kind of condescending, but um, in, a, in a local rural context can be treated that way. Um, often English is a second language, and they've moved from Pakistan or Iraq or India or wherever, um, the Philippines, to come into a rural community required to do so, to work in an underserved area until they get that coveted green card, and then they don't want their kids growing up in a place where they're the only ones speaking Arabic in West Kansas, and so they go to an urban space. Then there's the, the person who cuts up goats in the front yard or, like, drinks a mysterious red potion and slurs his words or um, steals drugs from the clinic and gives them to his girlfriend, who's also the ER nurse, or um, has an in-and-out service for high school kids, very inappropriately, of course, um, or shows up to his interview with a significant other that he met on the road on the way to the interview, right? That's all those things you might chuckle. All those things have actually happened in West Kansas. Get on the Kansas State Board of Healing Arts website and you will read some Jerry Springer-like stories going on in West Kansas because these towns are desperate for an active, barely, but active medical license. Um, And so I spent a lot more time on that one. You might imagine some of the doozies we have going on in West Kansas. So then there's half, pay me a half a million or a million dollars and then I'll, I'll move somewhere until somebody pays me half a million. One, maybe my care will be great. Maybe it won't be. But what's definitely going to be the, the case is that you're going to pay me big time to be there. I'm going to get my loans paid off. I'm going to save up a nice nest egg. And I'm going to end up in Frisco, Texas, just chilling. Like, I'm going to get that. By the time I'm 35, I'm going to have that suburban home. It'll be half paid off. I'll be in good shape. So that one, um, mon- the money doctor, rural, rural, rural communities can't compete, at least sustainably, for that. And then the last one is the missionary the one that's driven by a sense of mission or purpose that in our context we would say is living incarnationally or allowing Christ to live through them in radical service to others in hopes that they would see his hope, or the hope in the gospel. Um, so we figured out that's really the one we want, um, obviously. And if we can have that one and get them local, well, then that really is like definitely Merry Christmas because then they come with a support network, right? So we started offering 10 weeks of paid time off and saying it's really cool. And, in fact, we would love for you to integrate faith and medicine in this context, not knowing that people were going to be willing to drive two hours to have a doctor pray with them. That is how rare that is in American medicine, even in rural areas. So we had no idea what, you know, how, how that would actually play out, but we just said we just invite it because we believe people have spiritual needs and we want you to meet them in the exam room as is appropriate. And so... <coughs> Um, this was our 2015 medical provider team. This is the medical provider team now. And the ones in uh, blue are all millennials, and they've all come in the last four years, and we get a call every two to four weeks, two, three, four weeks, from a doctor that wants to work in Lake in Kansas. And I'm telling you that saying that it smells like poop there. Like, literally. It's a feedlot packing plant dairy town. Like, 
Doctors are calling every two, three, four weeks wanting to work in a town that smells like poop. Just don't think too much about that, but think about that just for a minute. Um, and so this is what happened to, to, to health outcomes when they showed up. So 2016, so first of all, gestational diabetes. Most of you are familiar, clinical enough to know what gestational diabetes is, diabetes that develops during pregnancy. And, and if not checked, it's like putting a baby on a nine-month sugar drip, and then they end up being 12, 13, 14 pounds and can't get through the birth canal and children decision, body decision. Todd, I've been hanging out with you long enough that I've learned some of these terms. Um, and so what happens is hypoglycemic baby, really sick, not not um, not healthy, not not a good situation for mom or baby, and um, bad outcomes in a place that's about four hours away from a good NICU, right? So um, twice the prevalence of gestational diabetes in our hospital when compared to the national average. Fourteen percent of moms are with GDM, high Hispanic population. Fifty percent of the moms delivering were Hispanic. Maybe that's part of it, but but um, beyond that, these these moms with GDM were having eighty-four percent of them having oversized babies which creates all kinds of problems, right? Not if, if the birth happens safely, well, then there's the 50% chance, uh, additional chance that a mom develops type 2 diabetes 10 years later. And if mom goes down with diabetes, right, who manages the health of the family? We realize we have a serious problem. When we added this really good primary care and the help of a maternal fetal medicine specialist out of Via Christi, we saw that 84% rate of, of GDM moms delivering big babies go down to 18%. I'm from the West Coast, urban West Coast, and in our, in our language, we would say that's legit. That is a real measurable impact of full-scale family medicine. That is not an OBGYN on staff. That's just family doctors that are well-trained to do OB. So this is what happened. So we started getting so many calls from doctors that wanted to work with us that um, we realized, why are we turning these people away? Let's help our neighbors that aren't even... Connect, directly connected to us contractually or organizationally, let's help them do the same thing. Let's find competent administration and then start placing three and four and five doctors in each site out there so that we can help improve health outcomes for a region. And so we started convincing rich people to give us their jets so we could fly in family medicine residents from the best family medicine residencies in the country in on the same weekend to hang out with each other because most of them knew each other through like med school or residency or pre-med or something like that so they could come out hang out with each other and we bring in like Shane and Shane and do a private show for them or Andrew Peterson to do a show for them or or um, just the governor would fly out and do because uh, he was a missionary surgeon during the Rwandan genocide and so he'd come out and say welcome we really hope you move here and send him nice notes and tell him please move to West Kansas and every time we did that because we'd let him see what functional full scope or broad scope family medicine looked like half a dozen of them would sign contracts and so we've done it three years in a row and this last time the Shanes came and they were really helpful um, in attracting folks to come out um, and this is what West Kansas looks like now there are over 20 missional family physicians, almost all of them millennials, that are practicing in southwest Kansas. So we're recruiting to a huge village, even though we're really spread out, sometimes hours away from each other. When two want to go overseas, they don't leave either community high and dry because they're able to travel together and go overseas. And all these people get between 8 to 10 weeks of paid time off to go anywhere in the world. And we figured out how to do that financially. Collectively, they served in all of these countries. And Northeast Africa and Southeast Asia are two of greatest interest to us because that's where our newest neighbors originate. They come from there. So they're coming to learn Somali. They're coming to learn Swahili. They're coming to learn Ma. They're coming to learn um, Arabic. They're coming to learn culture. They're coming to strengthen their clinical skills and to start a family and safely have babies and, and um, learn to be a disciple and learn to make disciples. And then they're able to move overseas. And so we would call these, these folks 
Senders, goers, and bridges, and the senders are the 30-year West Kansas dock that are anchor folk primary primary mission field is is a very underserved place in America called West Kansas. And they're hanging out, but they are reinvigorated and encouraged by the goers and senders, and the goers are ones that are with us three to five years paying off student loans, growing growing their family, um, and and uh, learning languages and preparing to go, and then they eventually move overseas into a hard place, often being taken by a refugee home that's a person of peace. Um, and, and so that, that, and there are those. And then there are the bridgers that say, I'll give you six months of my life. These are typically third culture kids that take their life in 90 to 180 day increments, right? We know those kind. Um, and so they say, I will do a disproportionate share of the work, provide great care, stabilize a site so that you can recruit more goers and senders. None of these three is more important than the other. They're all equally important. We might think that the 30-year West Kansas dock is the desirable. In fact, no, all three of them are equally important, and they've been a part of this strategy. So why did they come to West Kansas? Um, it's not the nine-hole golf course. This is a picture of it, right, um, with the gravel roads. Um, it's because there are a 1,000 women that, that experienced female genital mutilation, FGM, as little girls in West Africa. And they are experiencing constant pain from menstruation and urination and um, problems with intimacy and marriage and relationships and things like that because of what they experience as girls and are trying to make sense of that and are just now opening up and, and, and being willing to share that with us. And, and our providers are knowing, gosh, if I come there and I know that simple procedure, I can change somebody's life. <coughs> and as I do that, their hearts are open to why I did that. And so that's why they're coming, or they're coming to hang out with her. I don't know if you all remember the Starbuck fire. Much of Kansas, Texas, and Oklahoma was scorched a few years ago. And a huge fire. Well, this is a Somali refugee who went down and helped a rancher um, tear out his fences because he could no longer keep cattle there, and he needed to do some rebuilding. And it's an opportunity to do life with her. She is asking questions about the Bible now, two or three years in. Um, the opportunity to do life with people like Ifra Ahmed, um, or the reason that they're moving there, or the fact that Guatemalan refugee or, or immigrant kids are coming and they're 10 years old and their permanent teeth are rotting out of their heads because they've never seen a dentist, never seen a doctor, and are living in unthinkable circumstances. Not only get into the politics of all of that, but the reality is the need is there, and, and believing, incarnational believing, uh, incarnational living, believing families are moving to West Kansas to address these things. But I say all of that, and it sounds like a commercial. I'm going to share some gnarly underwear with you at this point. This is the feedback that those faces, those precious millennial faces that you saw, are sharing with us after being with us for a year or two. One of them said they love what I do for them, Ben, but they don't love me. This is a single female doctor who moved to West Kansas um, who is isolated. This is a great place to train if you're desirous to move to a closed country where, where people are suspicious of outsiders. We haven't been in a single home in the first year we've been in this community, and this particular family um, knows well what community is like in residency, went to residency in Memphis, and really um, knows what is going on there, and had invited 100 people, local people, into their home and hadn't been reciprocated once. In fact, one lady said, I think it's really cool that you have people over. I would never do this. It's like, man, did you really just say that? So that's what they're saying. Um, for, for the first six months after I arrived here, I wondered if I had unknowingly done something that had caused people to think poorly of me and now realize that it's not that they think poorly of me. They think nothing of me. They don't think about me at all. This 
is a snapshot into rural America. This has been the most isolating experience of my life. I've never known depression until I moved here. This is much harder than I thought it would be. This is a nurse that we met at Global Health Missions Conference who since moved to western Kansas and has since moved away because couldn't handle it. Everyone is friendly, but I don't have any friends. The feeling of isolation is real. This community doesn't have a classification for a single woman in her early 30s. Perhaps there are people who wanted to reach out to me, but they didn't know how to do so. She's now faculty at a very good residency in this country. The most convicting for me was a single female physician who came to me and said, I don't think you're advertising this position correctly. Stab me. That is the worst possible thing you can hear as a hospital CEO who recruited this person to a community. I take very seriously accurate advertisement of this stuff. And I said, I told you it's the hardest place I've ever known to live. And she said, you did say that. But there's this British explorer who named Ernest Shackleton who took expeditions to the South Pole. And he used to advertise in the newspaper. He said, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete emotional darkness, or complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor recognition in case of success, Ernest Shackleton for Burlington Street. She said, you know, he, he didn't make it back from the third trip. He knew where he was going. It wasn't easy. Like, you know, he, he died. Um, but but uh, if you change it to people wanted for an emotionally hazardous journey, small wages, emotionally bitter cold, long months of complete emotional darkness, constant emotional danger, we'd still come because we're missional, but we'd be pleasantly surprised when it's not quite that hard. Ow. Right? This is a snapshot into hospitality, not just in America, or in rural America, but in America. I now live in a neighborhood full of refugees in Denver, and I was walking into school with another dad, um, a third of our kids' class are refugees, and, and he said... Um, He's from Kenya. And I said, wow, how often do you go back to Kenya? And he said, not really anymore because my family lives in Denver. I said, oh, that's good. He said, it's a good thing because America's a hard place to live without family. This is convicting for the church in, 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 a, in, a, in a culture that celebrates Christianity, that we are no more hospitable than we seem to be, and certainly not the case in West Kansas where there are no purchasable replacements for family. I can order my groceries on my phone in Denver, and they show up at my house 45 minutes later. Not in Kansas. We get our kids out in the car and drive 35 minutes to that Walmart. And you bring all four of those toddlers in there to tear up that store, right? Because that's what goes down. So does this feedback sound familiar? Any parallels with overseas teams? A little bit? An effective administrative leader can play a critical role in developing a system and strategy to monitor and improve team member, team member health and prevent burnout. An effective administrative leader can play a critical role in doing that. And a good indicator of team health is the frequency of date or fun or personal nights. If you're single, how many times are you getting out with friends? Or if you're an introvert, reading or recharging your battery in the way that you recharge your battery. If you're married, how often are you spending time with your spouse? If you have kids, how often are you getting family nights? That's a measurable outcome that you can look at and say, this, this, are we healthy or are we not? So, leadership's impact on stewardship. Uh, so, leadership, leaders can have an impact on culture. Right, administrative leaders, but they can also have an impact on stewardship. So I was recently having a conversation with a missionary surgeon that's in Northeast Africa, and, and he was talking about these wild surgeries he's doing, like VP shunts and club feet and stuff like that you would normally see a neurosurgeon do here or an orthopedic surgeon do here. He's doing all those as a general surgeon. And I said, how do you track outcomes? And he said, outcomes? We don't even track volume. 
I don't have any idea how many... My patients don't come back to see me. I guess I don't have complications. Is that so? Because the Mayo Clinic has complications. Right? We don't even track volume here. But he said, you're looking at the administrator. I didn't train for administration. I figured out that was in my add-on job description once I got there. I don't know how to set up systems to track that type of stuff. Like, I didn't sign up for that. I signed up to do surgery. I'm used to being handed a scalpel, right? Well, nobody handed me scalpels here, right? Um, so Matt Hoffman is here somewhere at this conference. He was in this last session. I didn't know that until we, until we were presenting this last time. But Baylor Scott & White Health is a 12 or $13 billion system in Texas. And Joel Allison, the guy on the right, is a close mentor of mine. He set up a program called Faith in Action, which takes all, uh, all of the equipment that is essentially run its seven or so year course, but is still functional and usable, and it takes medical supplies and all those things, and sends it all to Waco to a former hospital uh, ER, where it essentially has become a shopping mall for missionaries uh, to go in there, get the supplies they need, and as long as you can get them, you can ship them, you can take them. They're not emotionally attached to this stuff. They just hand it to you um, as long as they know that it's going to be used for kingdom purposes and it's going to be used efficiently. Should they, at Baylor, Scott & White, or any other well-resourced organization, if their value, one of their core values is stewardship, be handing millions of dollars in equipment and supplies to a place that doesn't even track its volume? We are not known for quality internationally. We're known for proselytizing, and we're known for malpractice. Now, there are exceptions. There are, there are Christ-following, faithful believers that are doing amazing work around the world, but we really don't track outcomes very well, if we're honest. Think about the parable of the talents, and let's look at ourselves in the mirror and let's smell our own pits and think does this stuff apply to us I have a good friend in the Waco program or graduate from the Waco program who said something so impactful to me as he was graduating from residency he said if our call is to be a messenger for Jesus should we, we should first strive to be excellent as a reflection of Christ's work in our lives excellent care not just a medical license gives us the credibility to proclaim the gospel in hard places preach and heal let's heal well and preach well Let's heal well and preach well. So this is a person I've come to know, at least professionally. She's answered a lot of questions for me about administration over the years. She said her name is Sister Mary Jean Ryan, and she led SSM Healthcare in St. Louis to the first ever, Mal- ever Malcolm Baldrige Award for Quality. And healthcare is now the largest section, section of the Malcolm Baldrige Award. It's the most prestigious in the war- award in the United States for quality. And she was pushing for it constantly. And she said that any instance where a person is avoidably harmed due to, to broken processes or even good processes that could be better, we've committed a moral failure. Systems of care, though, hear me here, this is not her, this is me saying this, should not replace the precious or sacred relationship between a clinician and a patient. Systems may heal people and systems may harm people, but we can get so focused on systems that we lose the soul of what we're doing. And I'm not talking about sacrificing that or abandoning that. But because we love them, we we focus on good care. Because we love them, we, we measure outcomes. Because we love them, we invest in systems that will ensure that their body is healed so their souls are open to the gospel. Right? 
Um, I, when I was in Africa that trip, I, I took, I took the, the physicians there, a bunch of Muslim Somali physicians through a case study. It was an actual case study that it actually happened to one of their residents. And I said, you know, the woman is in labor. She's been in labor for 48 hours and it's not going well at home. And so she comes into the hospital. Um, she's been bleeding. She's exhausted, um, dehydrated and, and, um, and uh, something needs to happen quickly. And so they get her in there and quickly figure out she needs a C-section. Well, in their country, a woman cannot have a surgery without two signatures, one from the father, one from the husband. It doesn't matter if it's an emergent surgery and a trauma or if it's an OB or if it's a, an elective surgery. You can't have that without those two signatures. And so um, in this scenario, it's determined mom needs a C-section. It needs to happen emergently. It's a stat C-section. Um, dad says no. Inshallah. If God wills, she'll live. I'm not paying 50 bucks for the C-section. And husband cannot override dad. What do you do? And they said, well, we, we try to reason with dad. I said, okay, five minutes of arguing. Baby's dead. Now it's mom. Now what? It got uncomfortable because they were saying, well, we get the imam. We get the imam and try to, you know, try to reason and blah, blah, blah. And finally, uh, a woman spoke up who was 30 years in Canada, a nurse, and was the dean of this nursing school. Had really come back at the end of her career to make a difference, give back. And... She said, you people, we rarely make decisions well in the midst of crisis. We've known this woman is pregnant for nine months. Why have we not had systems in place that would ensure we have the, the documents signed before we were in the crisis, right? Makes sense, doesn't it? Who's responsible for developing that system? That seems like a basic system, right? Who's responsible for developing that? Systems heal people. Systems harm or kill people much more than a good or a bad doctor or a good doctor on a bad day or the right or wrong diagnosis or prescription or whatever systems affect this. Should physicians carry the primary burden of developing systems? Should they? I'm not asking are they carrying it. Should they carry it? Whatever you do, do heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer it will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Question for you, how much do we invest in sending a physician worker overseas? Give me a ballpark range. What do we, if we've got a, a doctor, we're preparing to send him over, with what we pay in their training, with what we, we reimburse in their loans, or what we raise and support, what are we what are we paying to send a doctor overseas? Huh? Three five hundred thousand, somebody said a million dollars to get somebody overseas. Does that sound like a reasonable a lot of money is the answer, right? A ton of money. A ton of kingdom cash, right, is what we're sending somebody overseas. What's the common most common reason workers come home prematurely? Burnout. Burnout, why? Okay. What do you mean other missionaries? What's Conflict between the team. Our current situation indicates we undervalue the impact of competent administrative leadership on teams. We take a kid who's good in the sciences in high school and get him into a good undergrad science program and get CMDA, gets them as 18-year-olds right when they get in and they feed them in and they make sure that they know about medical missions and if they're going to be a doctor. It's not for the purpose of medicine. It's for the purpose of healing somebody's soul and not their body and they get them in and then they get them into good medical schools that are, have CMDA chapters established there and then we get them into residencies in Wichita and Waco and A&M and College Station in Ventura, California and Muncie, Indiana and Fort Worth and wherever else does full scope family medicine. We get them into those places and then we send them into a two-year fellowship with language training and culture stuff and we send them on, right? 
What are we doing to train the administrator that prevents their burnout? We finding the student body president who is also president of FCA, and are we getting them into a business program? Are we snagging them in one of those chapters and getting them involved? And are we sending them into graduate programs and then having them hired into systems like SSM where they can learn about process improvement at the very best level in the world, taking that experience with a high-level MHA from a reputable college and sending them on with cultural training and language training and sending them overseas? Are we taking the lab manager who's been there the longest and saying, you'll do? What are we doing? Are we taking the local and saying, yeah, you got relationships. You'll work. You're a pastor. I'm not. It's no knock on pastors. Pastors do incredibly important work. Is it the same work? I mean, there's some crossover there, but, I mean, that's a stretch, right? What are we doing to find these people? And I would say that, that we need to look at a similar approach that we train physicians I asked the surgeon who shared that stuff with me earlier that I've quoted in here, what if you had somebody who spent as much of your time and energy and, and, and um, commitment to training and administrative leadership and team building and supply chain management and logistics and all of that, somebody at that level that could be your administrative partner, he said that would be heaven. But that's not my reality. So three key benefits of involving competent, mission-driven administrative leadership on medical teams. One is stewardship. Eliminate waste. Get access to resources that are tied to stewardship. The resources will come from this side of the pond to places when people know this is going to be used wisely. Investment of administrative leadership is a proven act of stewardship. There's a reason why CEOs and other administrative leaders on this side of the pond get paid what they do. I'm not saying it's right, but it's extremely valuable to a system. And smart people that manage a lot of money know that, and so that's why they place that high of a value there. And, and then to maximize stewardship, each team member should work or practice at the highest level of their training. There are things that I know and love doing around supply chain management, team building, and recruitment, and fundraising, and things like that, that that surgeon that's my buddy hates doing. It's not his thing. And you don't want me turning into somebody's gallbladder. That's a scary thought, right? But we're all called into different roles in the kingdom. And I'm, I'm simply saying that we may undervalue this specific role. The third is excellence, the prevention of harm, the scaling of quality, tracking outcomes that actually matter to the people that we're serving. What did you come in for and did it get addressed? Did we serve you? Did we love you well in service? And then the last one is team member satisfaction and retention. Um, we invest immense resources in sending physicians and workers overseas only for them to return home prematurely because of team conflict. And one capable, mission-driven administrator can prevent the burnout of several, even a dozen or more physicians. This is a steward. This is a call to stewardship. So, how would an agency ensure a physician is a professional and clinically prepared to advance the kingdom of God through medicine? What if we did the same thing for administration? What if we said, these are the non-negotiables. We need the world's best training to go into these countries to make sure that we have systems, not just that prevent physician burnout or provider burnout, but can really lead folks to thrive, lead people to heal, and open doors with heads of state, with kings, with presidents, with heads of state, because we have the credibility to do so. These are some of the things that are necessary in one of those leaders. And if you're struggling to believe this, ask a physician who's been tossed into this role and really doesn't want it.
because it's going to be them. So here's some relevant resources for leadership development, assuming that you don't have time for a master's degree. Um, the University of Houston and logistics, international logistics, or whatever, these are some, and these are some non-academic but very practical and helpful weekend reads. One is called Hardwiring Excellence. sets the standard for organizational culture in American hospitals, but a lot of the truths are, are applicable around morning safety huddles and communication and employee engagement and things like that. But they're in there. It's, it's helpful. It's a couple hundred pages. One's The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. It's a parable-based book um, where you read through it and and you'll think, okay, I'm that person, this person on my team is that person, and so on and so forth. You start identifying which character is which and which one's always on their, their cell phone during a meeting and which one is um, defensive and which one talks too much and which one doesn't listen and all those things. And you can see through that and work through how a team can be transformed through leadership. And the third one is a practical book called Crucial Conversations that would probably save the marriages, save the lives um, or well-being, anyway, of a lot of folks that are on the field that are struggling right now that just have not been equipped with the skills to have these conversations when when we're at boiling points, when we're overseas in high-pressure situations. Another tool would be to send a, a young worker through a, a Malcolm Baldrige Award, a Quality Award Examiner um, training. So there's, this is actually a thing. The people, there's people that have to evaluate if organizations win quality awards, and certain organizations in this country invest in, in young leaders to go get that training and then go evaluate other organizations, knowing they're going to bring that knowledge back to their organization and make their organization better. So you can actually get a graduate of a, of a a good business school or a good program or public health school into uh, an organization where they're being paid very good money to work there and learn these skills and then they will then pay for that master's degree and they will pay for for this type of training to become a quality uh, award examiner. Um, That's the person who loves Jesus, who wants to serve in hard places, that can go in and transform a system that can prevent the burnout of folks. So Things to think about. What th- This is one effective way to solve a problem or a tool that we use. It's a six-question tool. What outcome needs improvement? Who are the stakeholders? Where are there opportunities to share? Why isn't it already happening? How do we measure its success? And when do we expect to see progress? Answer these six questions. That is your strategy. Implement the strategy. Repeat. Ask what outcome now needs improvement. Who are the stakeholders? Where are there opportunities to share? Why isn't it already happening? If, if the strategy didn't work, go back to the fourth question. Why isn't it already happening? We probably ran into a snag of why it's not already happening that we didn't think about. Go back and answer these questions and implement the strategy again. As I come to a close here, um, how many of you ever heard of Batara General Hospital? A few of you in Rwanda? You know who instigated it? It led to the largest uh, reduction in maternal mortality in the history of the world. Well, at least that's what they claim. Um, Paul Farmer, a liberation gospel guy, hijacked the gospel into his own version of whatever, right? And um, passionate about outcomes, has won the favor of kings, heads of state, ministers of health. Anything he asks for in Rwanda, he gets. You build a system that that reduces maternal mortality better than anywhere else in the world and bring that kind of honor and recognition to our country, come on in with all your baggage. You can come on in, we'll have you, Right? What if this was us? What if we were known for that? So if, if secular organizations are better known for publishing, and publishing would open doors to heads of state, then let us be good at publishing. If improving maternal mortality would open doors into, into hard places and give us favor with heads of state, let us be really good at that. Not to mention that 
those outcomes are tied to human souls that we are called to connect with. Um, what are some examples of Christ-centered mission teams who have measurably improved health outcomes in a population? Any come to mind? Okay, think through that. It's a heavy thought. I would actually, it's a literal question, I would love to know after this if you could give me some examples because I would love to learn from them and how we can replicate those things. Assess your own team health. Are you a stable team with high retention of leadership, forward thinking, motivated by mission, vision, and values, strong employee engagement, team-based recruitment, responsive to timely needs of others, succession, and retention plans are in place in a positive organizational culture with commu- communication, connect- connected leadership and staff, work-life balance, generational value, and relationships with your team? Or do we have high turnover of team members, low retention of leadership, stuck thinking, mission and values are stated in some lost documents, tucked away somewhere, weak member engagement, one person or no one is tasked with recruitment, is so overwhelmed it's difficult to be responsive, no succession or retention planning, struggling organizational culture, broken communication, just on and on and on. Look at this. Which organization do you, does your team most resemble? Prioritizing measurable quality, safety, and stewardship initiatives through investment in competent administrative leadership is a wise, sustainable use of kingdom resources. And if you're currently on a team that is lacking effective leadership, consider making this your team's top priority, even over direct patient care. We must first put on our mask so that we can serve others and keep them safe. We must make sure that we are healthy. If you are an effective leader... Seek resources and accountability on it. Get help or change roles. Some of us are not called to be in that situation. Some of us are called and are capable if we had tools. Figure out the difference. Get healthy for the glory of God. If this is the case. If you're considering joining a medical team, this came from my friend who's a surgeon in a hard place. If you're considering joining a medical team, evaluate its administrative capacity. And if it's missing or dysfunctional, you as a clinician will have to take time out of practicing medicine to complete those necessary administrative tasks. I got into surgery to help people for the glory of God in unreached places, not to order scalpels online and and navigate customs in a developing country. Um, When I was in training in the U.S., I didn't even know this stuff went on behind the scenes. Somehow the sterile gloves were always where I needed them to. Somebody handed me a scalpel and I just used it. Scrub nurses or techs handed me instruments. I only saw systems when they didn't work, which was rare. And now I'm in a hospital in a developing world, and today I spent 10 minutes trying to find gloves. That's just gloves. That doesn't count the hundreds of other things that are needed to practice good medicine. I can't tell you how many hours people spend here each week taking small handfuls of gloves and placing them in piles around the hospital for people to use. If someone would just spend an hour a week stocking supplies in standard places, we would double the productivity of our staff and people. In U.S., people waste time with electronic documentation. Here, it's supplies. Someone needs to process map our entire hospital and delegate those responsibilities to team members in those standardized, efficient ways, decreasing variability and ensuring quality. Final point. When you find the person to do that, or to lead the people to do that, you take care of the person. I've spent the last 11 years of my life trying to plug those holes for a guy just like him, or for a team just like him. And administrators are humans too. And they're vulnerable. And they have families. And somebody needs to make sure that they're checking to make sure they're okay. The most important thing I've ever done as a CEO is watch Bambi with two toddlers so her, their physician father and PA mother could have a date. 
I do all other kinds of things as a CEO. That's the most important thing I've done. And what I'll tell you after 10 years is no one was doing that for my family. All right? So a team is only sustain, as sustainable and healthy as its leader. This is so so all, this has been a heavy message. All right? I want to close by saying this. Really quoting out of 1 Corinthians, I give thanks to my God for always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you given you in Christ Jesus that every, in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift for as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you in the end the guilt, guiltless in the day of Lord Jesus Christ God is faithful and by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord the Lord is faithful he keeps his promises. When I fail to follow through, he always does. <clears throat> he always follows through. He returns every call. And so if you are tired, it's okay. This is a really good place to be if you come tired, right? Um, but there's hope. Pray through this stuff. Thank you so much for listening. Can we close in prayer? Father in heaven, just thank you so much for this message. Lord, we pray that, that it falls on open ears. And we pray that folks are encouraged and not discouraged by it, are challenged, Lord, to, to look at service to you in other ways, finding tangible ways uh, to, to impact people's lives, knowing that that is simply a means to a much greater end, which is building your kingdom, that your, your name would be made great among the nations. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Yeah, he's this guy. Uh, this guy's been involved in um, a whole network of of hospitals all over Western Kansas, and now has a higher platform in Colorado and is really charged with rural recruitment and retention for all the rural hospitals in the state of Colorado. Lord keeps moving him up because he's a man of influence. And Father, we love Ben. We thank you for this word today. Uh, we pray especially for he and his, his wife that you would bless their marriage, that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit, uh, that you would meet his deepest need. We pray for unity in his marriage. We pray for agreement in their parenting. We pray for wholeness and rest in their family. Uh, we thank you for the influence and gifts on him. We ask you that you would increase his influence for your kingdom, uh, that you would use him for your glory. Yeah, your kingdom come and your will be done in Ben and through Ben for Jesus' sake. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thanks, dude. Thanks.